Welcome to Don't You Want Me, a podcast series taking a light-hearted look at the most relatable, intriguing, and dysfunctional relationships in film. I'm Kat. And I'm Rich. Mr. Mystery Guest. Are you still there? Yeah, I'm still here. Unless you want to open a front door for me. I'm afraid not. But you have me at a loss. You know my name, but who are you? Just another American who saw too many movies as a child. Another orphan of a bankrupt culture who thinks he's John Wayne, Rambo, Marshall Dillon. I was always kind of partial to Roy Rogers, actually. I really like those sequined shirts. Do you really think you have a chance against us, Mr. Cowboy? Yippee-ki-yay, motherfucker. So we have four Christmas bonus episodes coming up this December. Uh, Paul, who composed the lovely music that you just heard, has chosen one film. I've chosen one. Our followers on Twitter have also chosen a movie. But tonight, my co-host Rich has chosen something very special. Rich, what are we talking about tonight? Ah, In this episode, we're going to be the fly in the ointment, the monkey in the wrench, the pain in the ass of 1988's Die Hard. Directed by John McTiernan, written by Jeb Stewart and Stephen D'Souza, and based on the 1979 novel Nothing Lasts Forever by Roderick Vorp, Die Hard was an unexpected box office success, making film stars out of both Bruce Willis and Alan Rickman, and nominated for four Oscars. Today it's as celebrated as arguably the greatest action movie ever made, and as well as a cherished Christmas classic. Tonight we'll be holding our lighter up to the relationships that our hero John McClane has with Hans Gruber and Al Powell. What do these connections tell us about the ingredients for rivalry, friendship and Twinkies? Welcome to the party, pal. Oh, this is exciting. (laughs) So, Rich, do you want to tell us a little bit about your relationship to Die Hard? Oh, this is just... I mean, it's it's not a Christmas... It, it is a Christmas film, and it's not just a great action film. It's both. And when you think about how some action films are quite generic, they happen, you can enjoy them for a little while. Um, this one has so much else going for it. There's so much humour and intelligence in the writing, the script, the relationships that we're going to talk about and also the fact that it's at Christmas so it means I get an excuse to watch it every Christmas Eve <laughs> because that's when the film was set and of course I've got to watch it an extra time this year because I got to watch it before we did this so I get to watch it twice in about two weeks which is brilliant um, and I think it is just perfect and, and there aren't many films that you can watch every year and especially on the same day every year you don't get tired of it you notice new things and and especially watching this film now with with the eyes of doing this podcast that now we're looking at not just the film we're not just looking at the way it was made or its reception but we're looking at a specific point or a couple of points here where you've got John McClane Bruce Willis who's very much you know the hero in every measure of the word Mm. but he has because of the writing because of the way the the film's been presented he's got a relationship that is really quite a special one with someone he hasn't or he doesn't meet until the end scene yeah in in sergeant al powell Mm. and he's also got a relationship 
with someone that he meets a couple of times again once during and and once towards the end with Hans Gruber and, and this is again the, the second part of our Alan Rickman double bill which is called um Rickman around the Christmas tree of course yeah <laughs> we should have done uh, Robin Hood Prince of Thieves for a triple bill because he tried <laughs> to can- cancel Christmas there didn't he but, um and bear in mind the whole reason John McClane is at this party at the Nakatomi Tower is because his wife Holly that it makes it a Christmas film she works at this building in Los Angeles she's invited him out to this party and their relationship that we'll talk about is also strained I think is a a nice gentle way of putting it but uh, yeah. over the over the course of the film we we explore the reasons for that and and how it might possibly be resolved but um I mean, this is a film I've seen dozens of times over the last, I don't know, 25 years or so. But, um, I mean, you've only seen it for the first time, was it about five, five years ago? Yes, I, I, have, a, I have a birthday in December. I'm not dropping any hints. And I saw this at the Prince Charles Cinema on my birthday about five years ago. And it's a really great one to see on the big screen for the first time. I feel very lucky that that was my introduction to it. And I thought that it might not be uh, that appealing to me. I'd heard an awful lot about it, but it really won me over for lots of reasons, um, some of which you've already touched on. I think that it's a really funny film, isn't it? And very knowing and kind of sends up a lot of tropes about action films in the 80s in a really clever way and also has you know some really some really engaging relationships going on and maybe the best ever villain in a film he's got he's got to be up there yeah i think so i mean yeah something i i find quite interesting having read up about the film is that um they cast Alan Rickman after having seen him in Dangerous Liaisons on Broadway. And um, that's a really good link to Hans Gruber because in Dangerous Liaisons, um, which John Malkovich plays the lead role in the film version, but that's also kind of a similar situation where you have someone who's almost the protagonist themselves who's playing someone who even though they're incredibly out for themselves and very cruel they kind of manage to get the audience on side and there's something about the cunning and the cleverness of the man that makes you kind of exasperated with him by the idiocy that's going on around him I mean, what did you, can you remember what you first made of Hans Gruber when you first saw him? He was like a Bond villain, <laughs> yeah. a good Bond villain. Um, you know, he's, again, English playing German. He just had this very suave presence and, and he played up for it as well. We're talking about the the benefits of a classical education and when he was in the suit with Takagi talking about the the suits that they both wear and and all these these things but he's so as the film goes on and as we we boil down to the fact that he's not a terrorist he's just a robber um he's a thief essentially and and that kind of un, under that under that layer of smooth really he's just a 
you know, a bog standard criminal who just happens to be aiming high. Um, yeah. And it's weird that in the film, he and John don't meet until I think it's, um, it's about 90 minutes until they meet in the flesh. So we're an hour and a half of the way into a, just over a two hour film yeah. where they meet in the flesh. I mean, and obviously that, I mean the, the repartee between them over the radio as, um, as John, begins foiling the various plans and schemes of of Hans Gruber's evil plot to to rob the Nakatomi company of hundreds of millions of dollars in be- negotiable bearer bonds which was very much the the currency of choice in the 1980s and they have these these chats on the radio and some of it and, and the quote that you heard at the beginning of the podcast is I mean it's iconic stuff you know when Hans you know you've got a German being played by an Englishman and putting it to an American about that he's the orphan of a bankrupt culture and about all this cowboy stuff and then John McLean just replies yippee-ki-yay motherfucker yeah and just that kind of the the faces that Rickman pulls (laughs) the way that he looks at the radio when he talks it's just so funny I I really really love that whole exchange it's kind of that exchange about the about John McClane trying to be one of these American heroes in a movie that he used to watch growing up is kind of a, a really kind of good comment, isn't it, on the on the people watching, but also maybe some of the aspects of what might have been a bit of a problem in his marriage, where you kind of get the sense that John has a very fragile ego, don't you? And that he kind of sees himself as as something and and um, when it came to his wife getting a job elsewhere, he might have found it difficult to to uproot and do something new, maybe because he has quite a strong idea of who he is in his head. So some of the things that Hans says to him, you kind of feel like Hans is very clever because even without having met him, there's something about his insight where he manages to kind of get get a handle on John from afar from quite early on, doesn't he? Yeah. And and as you say, the, the relationship with Holly, while they meet at the beginning, they meet at the end, they have no direct contact between those two points. Um, Hans has more screen time, more, more script with Holly than, than John does. And, and he picks, and, and like you say, the when, you know, we we know John's a cop from his time on the plane, and he says about you know the the guy with the fist with his toes is I'm a cop. I've been doing it for nine years. Yeah, so he's still a, still a rookie in my eyes. But he's um, and he refuses to move to Los Angeles because he's got this like six month backlog of scumbags he's trying to put behind bars. You know, which you know isn't really a a nice way of putting. It. I mean, these guys might you know they deserve a fair trial. Yeah, and <laughs> um, and and the fact that. Holly has obviously got herself this job and the fact that she's gone back to using her maiden name, little things like that. that, Yeah. You know, when she says she's glad to see him and he immediately comes back with, but you don't miss my name except when you're signing checks. Yeah. There's that kind of little barb that this has been built up inside him for, for so many months. And even when his wife is so pleased to see him, he needs to get on that kind of front foot and. Yes. Be that old kind of 
what he, you know, and, and again, like she says, what her, what his idea of a marriage is isn't what hers part perhaps is, and and he has to get these little digs in, and he's quite old fashioned in that way. Yeah, I think that that exchange between them is very convincing, isn't it, of two people that love each other, but there are these things that needle them about one another, and they fall into the same arguments that they've been having before quite easily and I think that you know that that's very convincing about a marriage that's gone awry so it's not about there being no feeling between the two people it's just about these areas where one person or another might be being stubborn and it's just really hard to you know get through to a resolution I mean does it strike you that John is being difficult or do you feel sympathetic to him? I, I mean, you feel sympathetic to him in that he's obviously dedicated to his job. Yeah. And, of course, this was the 80s when all cops had to be renegades. They had to kind of give their all at the cost of a marriage. It's I don't know if you saw that, um, that Rob Lowe Netflix special recently about the cliches. You know, oh yes, they, yes. You know, there was a thing about the the cops had to be hard drinking, you know, give it lose a marriage or a kid or something like that, you know, and they had to make this sacrifice and and there was a bit of that, but the film, you know, bear in mind it was based on a book from the late seventies and the film came out in the late eighties, was kind of looking ahead a little bit into that era where where women were starting to get more high-profile, high-powered jobs. Yeah. Um, she's like a vice president or something, CEO, not quite a CEO, but I think she's she's on the board of this massive company. Yeah. And I'm not saying that he should drop everything and, and go and support her, but there is an element of that he's not quite at a place where certainly in 2021, and this is something we do look at a lot, where... He he doesn't seem like he's quite ready to to be that husband yet. Um, whereas yes. if if this film were made now, it might be slightly different. And I think that's kind of where he isn't comfortable, perhaps playing second fiddle, and has to keep his own identity as Officer John McLean, or whatever rank he happens to be. Yeah, it's. Um, that's obviously so important to him that he's willing or will, you know it's part of the reason why their marriage is is rocky anyway and they're quite open when when holly talks to the kids about you know his daddy coming to stay and they she's put up a spare room for him so even in this house that she's got in california yeah if he comes to stay with her he's going to be sleeping on the on the spare bed or on the sofa the two of them seem quite relaxed, don't they, about their Christmas plans, given this is Christmas Eve. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> yeah, should we just have a casual chat now about whether or not you're going to stay or I don't even know if you're going to show up or, and you, you know, you think, God, they've, they're, they're both, they're both being quite laid back about their whole, their whole Christmas season. I mean, yeah, <laughs> these, these days you can't be that relaxed, can you really? You know, you can't just rock up and get a mega bus on a Christmas Eve night, can you? (laughs) No, those poor kids. The kids are just like, what's happening at Christmas? And the parents are like, I don't know. Just go with it, you know. Are we going to see our dad on Christmas Day? Don't know. Don't know. He might be at his old old boss's place in Pomona. (laughs) I mean, I think that that whole theme that you're just talking about in terms of him being threatened by her. I think that's really universal. And I think that 
that would still go on now. And mm. you know, it could go in both directions in terms of uh, your other half getting a new job that's maybe, you know, got a lot of status to it and stuff. I mean, we, we talked about that, didn't we? When we did The Devil Wears Prada, we kind of touched on some of those themes. So I think it's something that's still really relevant now. I think that another thing that they point out about John from quite early on in the film, something that I noticed this time around, is that he checks other women out quite a lot, doesn't he? Hmm. Yeah, at the airport. Yeah. Um, I suppose for him it's a culture shock if you're going from New York in December to to LA in December. It, there, there is a, a change. And I guess it's probably something that if you're American or spend more time in America, you might be more aware of, you know, in the way that perhaps there's a, in this country, there's a north-south divide, whatever. But, um, you know, when when you go and see people in tight lycra and... <laughs> yeah. Um, and again, you know, that when he doesn't really see it so much but there is that kind of 80s excess i mean we've got he sees a lot of stuff that when he meets ellis for the first time and ellis is doing coke off holly's table off yes. Holly's desk i mean ellis is brilliant oh he's so but good <laughs> i love the him. pinnacle of 80s smarmy twat yeah um and we meet him and and this is something that's kind of you know we're in the time of the 80s when you know 88 were a year after say wall street for example so yes that whole yuppie culture yeah and there's the rig emphasis on the fact that he bought holly a rolex watch which turns out to be what kind of gets him out of the pickle at the end but it's um you know people like that it's that i suppose it'd be the same for a lot of people if they're from a certain background or they're used to a certain way of life and all of a sudden you know john mcclain is now on the 30th floor of a Los Angeles skyscraper getting given champagne and seeing all this kind of money yes that he's not used to I mean I'd be exactly the same it must be a little bit of a very much out of his comfort zone yeah he doesn't he doesn't like the cocktails that they're serving does he all of that yeah (laughs) he'd rather have a nice sort of budget beer or something like that yes yes um, it's not it's not his scene at all Hmm. And um, yeah, I mean, in that in that way, it's it's quite balanced, I reckon, because you on the one hand, you can see that, you know, that I mean, that line that Holly has later in the film, only only John could drive someone that crazy is (laughs) fantastic. And you you really get that about John McClane, I think. And at the same time, though, as you say, there is something about him coming into Holly's world, into this place that she's working and you see, oh, yeah, I. I can understand why that would feel quite alienating and maybe a bit, you'd be in two minds about whether or not to embrace this new development in her life when you see some of the other people that she's working with. It's interesting when he's on the plane, there's that thing where you see the stewardess really checking him out and he's got the big bear, you know. And, you know, you have that thing when you're watching it as a woman thinking, when when men look like they're really good parents, that's a hot thing. <laughs> but when women look like they're good parents, that's just yeah, just yeah, whatever happens all the time. This is, this is Hollywood, <laughs> isn't it? I wonder if this is the same bear that Alec Baldwin had in the Hunt for Red October because he ended up flying back after the film with a giant teddy bear. Oh really? Daughter. Yeah. Oh, oh maybe that's yeah cross. Maybe the same. Uh, maybe a star bear. 
Maybe. But then this these films all take place in the same kind of universe. Yeah. Because the writer, Stephen DeSue, and this is, God, I'm going well off topic here, but... No, 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 go for it, go for it. In the, in the sequel for this, yeah. they, they talk about a country called Valverde, yeah. which I think I read Stephen D'Souza made up um, to avoid kind of saying, you know, in the 80s, all the crime takes place in like Colombia or Bolivia or something, which was the same place that Commando was set in. You know, there's all this stuff about how the sequels for those were the same and you wonder what sort of crossover there would have been. You know, I mean, I guess if... I mean, Bruce Willis was... I mean, was Moonlighting still on in 88? I think it was. Well, I know that when he was filming this, he was also filming Moonlighting. So he looks tired for a reason, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so it's a huge... And, and that show is famous for its chemistry with him and Sybil Shepherd. Yeah. So... Yeah, you know he's coming off that with off the back of a or, or, or alongside an ongoing relationship whatever that was and that's kind of what I think gives him a lot of credence here whereas opposed I mean if you'd have put Stallone or Schwarzenegger in this film I, I think you'd have struggled to get across really that that kind of human side especially with Holly and I think but also with with Hans and and, and later on with Al to get that kind of humanity that say brotherhood with Al that yeah sort of friendly rivalry I think if it had been with Hans if it had been Stallone yeah I'm not sure Stallone who is a very good actor on his day um, but I'm not sure if the nuance would have been there to really bring that out Yes, um, yes, completely. And I think, yeah, that, that's why Bruce Willis is John McClane, as apparently he tells anyone who tries to bump him off the set of the next Die Hard 6 or whatever. <laughs> well, he ha- there's so many asides in it, isn't there, where he's talking to himself about how he ended up in this situation. There's a lot of kind of natural human flapping and just sort of not not really being able to quite... You know, he and and you know he does a fair bit of blundering. He's even though on the one hand he's he's very cool and manly executing all of these things. On the other, as you say, he's still doing it in a really human way that kind of can make someone think about how they might react if they were put in that situation. And he doesn't sort of stride forward in a kind of "I will handle it all." It's he's kind of reluctant, isn't he? And it's weird that a lot of the quips in this film, they're him talking to himself. Yes. As you say, like he, he talks to himself throughout. And this is where, while the yippee kaye is at hands initially, you know, the, the quotes that he says in the air vent, they're to himself when that kind of stuff, they're to himself. And it's kind of, he's acting against himself. And we're not quite at the point where we were when we talked about Superman, for example, where it's almost like two people having a relationship with themselves. Yeah. With Superman and Clark Kent. But it's John McClane almost trying to talk to himself to keep himself sane. Yes. Yes, completely. Which I guess if you're in this kind of situation, and we're not talking about a Helsinki syndrome or a Stockholm syndrome or, or whatever. Yes. But um, it's, it's an amusing aside and then it also takes i think it's nearly an hour before john and al interact and we're at the point where john has killed heinrich and thrown marco out the window 
onto Al's car as he's investigating and Al Powell has been kind of painted as this kind of jovial police officer who's buying Twinkies for his pregnant wife yeah and just happens to be kind of caught up in all this yeah I mean the relationship that you have with those two is unbelievable yeah. in the connection that they have and we've joked about it before about how they're like podcasters who've met over COVID and <laughs> yeah. essentially they've formed this bond over a communication channel yeah and a kind of slightly traumatized one at that yeah, <laughs> yeah. there's always a shadow lurking over it and, yes uh, occasionally you might get some listeners whether it's uh Hans Gruber or the the deputy chief of police but, yeah um, yeah and then they kind of have this glorious meeting at the end but uh, they go for a, a bit of a roller coaster as well where you know Al despite the the presence of the wonderful Paul Gleason as his superior. Mm. I wouldn't take that insubordination from from Sergeant Powell, but still, it's uh, <laughs> it's sure um, you wouldn't. No, I wouldn't. But it's um, it's an impressive kind of fact that Al, who's a desk cop, which we go into, you know, he's he doesn't look like Bruce Willis. You know, he he looks like he belongs behind a desk. Yes, and yet he's the one with the initiative and the insight and knows he has this sense that John's a cop he has this sense of what John's trying to do he's the one who's like I wouldn't say a guardian angel on the outside but he's the one who's very much representing him um giving him some agency outside and and yeah it's a shame the sequels kind of didn't go into it Al kind of had a couple of small moments in the second one and, and that was it yeah but these two really were a memorable pairing and it would have been nice to see them in some kind of buddy cop film later on absolutely it's a really interesting thing uh decision as well to have there's quite a theme in the you know the thing about the kids being at home waiting for their parents to come home for christmas al's wife is pregnant and then also the fact that we find out that he accidentally killed a child these the that that whole sort of sense of sort of res- kind of family and responsibility and carrying that feeling of responsibility for for people on your shoulders seems to be one of the things that really kind of connects the two of them i think because i think that when they're you know they ask each other about each other's kids don't they and that sense of the two of them having people that they're feeling for outside this situation seems to be something that's quite important to their bond doesn't it yeah and and that part where you know it gets quite touching when they're saying about you know we'll meet al jr on the jungle gym one day and he wrote talking on an open radio channel where this is when hans reveals that he knows who who john is after ellis has bubbled him up and you know they've had this talk you know it's really poignant kind of you're like a dad's whatsapp group now weird <laughs> it's um and then you've got rickman listening in and you know this is rickman who will later go on to cheat on emma thompson and and all that but it's uh, yeah ter- yeah terrible business are you short um, of staplers <laughs> <laughs> and it's, it's a weird kind of thing really because hans and and um and al don't communicate directly really but yeah that kind of weird little triangle they've got going on yes the the balance is interesting and then it's really handled well that it doesn't 
fall over one way or the other too much. No, and and also the their their dynamic with Paul Gleason. When I was watching it, I was thinking that it's almost as if Al and John are like Molly Ringwald and Judd Nelson. <laughs> <laughs> and they're kind of playing out the same scenario as in The Breakfast Club because Paul Gleason comes along and it's like he's just just not even bothered to change out the costume that he wears in The Breakfast Club. He just looks exactly the same and he's and it's exactly the same performance and he's being almost exactly the same character. And there's even got there's even that bit in The Breakfast Club, do you remember where Judd Nelson is crawling along the ceiling? Yeah. And I thought, actually, that's quite similar to Die Hard. <laughs> and um, yeah, and then the whole bit of them embracing at the end, Al and John, you know, quite similar to the kiss between Judd Nelson and Molly Ringwald. You know, maybe. Again, a little bit of John Hughes in there. We quite often spot a bit of John Hughes, don't we, in, our, in these films that we do. We do, and, and maybe maybe Paul Gleason is this kind of character who brings people together in the way that he he was the kind of one of the baddies in Trading Places. Oh, yeah. You know, he ended up getting sodomized by a gorilla, but that was a slightly different ending to how yeah, he, a different he ending. got here. Yeah. I'm not the one who just got butt-fucked on national TV, Dwayne. When you look at that there, they're kind of united against him. You know, Al's dis- annoyed that this politician cop because you would be if you're a deputy chief you're coming down and you know you're not playing it properly you're playing it almost for the cameras or you're not understanding the nuance of the situation yes. and um you know al being more of the street is a little bit more balanced and then is an interesting one you know and again at the end when it's he's lucky because the Dwayne, we'll call him Dwayne. He comes, you know, at the end when when John and Holly are being carried out of the build or led out of the building, you know, he's immediately McLean. I want a debrief. You know, there's no welfare concerns there. There's no managing his injuries or his well-being. It's straight into I demand answers. You know, I've got you know, a proper pencil pusher. Yes, um, and he's only disrupted when what happens with Carl and and Al's intervention. At the end, it's, um, I mean, that's a proper triumphant moment, isn't it? When, um, I mean, jump, jumping right to the end here, but when uh, Carl, who should, you know, we, he was left for dead. Yes. John, we fought, killed him. Yeah. And I am going to blame the paramedics who clearly didn't check Carl when they put him in the body bag <laughs> and probably left him there while still carrying a gun. <laughs> And then luckily Al, who, as we heard, hasn't drawn his weapon since shooting a 13-year-old boy, because that's what LA cops do, um, who luckily saves the day with his big gun while everyone gasps and Holly and John dive to the floor. interfering with police business. It has become a cliche, and that was cliche and and ripped off in, what was it, Loaded Weapon 1? I think, and, uh, you know, about shoot, shooting kids. <laughs> Ken, you can make Oh, yes, that, of course. 
Oh, I love Loaded Weapon 1. <laughs> I, oh, I saw that at the cinema and I laughed so much. Is oh. that the one with the beaver at the end? I mean, a literal beaver. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The, yeah, yeah. And uh, that was where John McClane actually played John McClane in the film. This film has launched a thousand parodies. Yes, so. yes. Yes, that's a, that's a good one. Good one. It's got it's got those flashback sequences, hasn't it? Emilio Estevez running in slow motion on the beach, hand in hand with people. Yeah. Anyway, yeah, I could just I won't I won't I won't make this into the loaded weapon podcast. Save that for another series day. Two. Yeah. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> Why do you think that they chose for it to be a kid that he'd accidentally shot? Do you think rather than just the wrong guy? Um, I, I think it had to be emotive enough for him to kind of tell himself, I'm never going to pull my gun again. Right, you know, I I've, see, yeah. I've done the ultimate bad thing. He's still a cop um, and still carries a gun, of course. But yeah. um, I think if it had just been the wrong guy, it would have been, you know, he might have been, oh, maybe I'll be more careful next time. But it had to be like a kid. Yeah, I see. I suppose to, to have that emotional weight yes. on it. But um, again, that, that might be slightly different these days. Um, I mean, I I enjoyed as a kind of a side and we're talking, you know, the the other side of the love rhombus. We call it a love triangle sometimes. And um, the the play between Hans and Holly. Yes, I did too. Yeah. When um, I mean, she asks or confronts him and he says, what idiot put you in charge? His face when she says you did. Yeah. Well, you shot my boss. <laughs> I mean, that, that look was daggers. Was yeah. Phenomenal. Yeah, and he's quite... Uh, he he. That makes him respect her, I think, because they're exchange. Mm. He's very respectful towards her in, in that bit of the film, isn't he, in comparison to a lot of the other people. He said he says that, you know, that her boss chose his staff well. And Well, that was so. in the same... Like, at the end of that conversation, you know, he, she's already won him over as such in the space of about 90 seconds after yeah. demanding a sofa and luckily she'd slammed the photo the family photo down so he didn't quite twig that, it, that he was her husband and that led throughout the movie going towards the end when she calls him out as they've managed to get the vault door open saying you're nothing more than a common thief uh, and the exceptional line of I, I'm an exceptional thief <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and if you was it, and if you want me to take this kidnapping to murder, I think that their relationship was there was a real bitterness between them because she knew that John was the the fly in the ointment, as it were, uh, and he at this point obviously knew who she was. But um, I did find it weird that over the course of the film, her blouse had to be undone enough. <laughs> Just <laughs> yes, this this film for considering its subject matter and, what, and the context of it, you see quite a lot of tits in this film or a suggestion <laughs> of tits because you get the tits, yeah. the tits wet because someone's having sex on the table in the office party and then you get the tits that show you that you're near the elevator shaft that John keeps running by. And then, yeah, as you say, you don't see Holly's tits, but you see a little, you have to see a little suggestion of, a reminder that Holly has tits lest, lest you lose interest in her. <laughs> So, Woman. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, but you're so right about the connection between those two. In fact, harking back yet again to the film, one of the films that we've already done, I did slightly wonder whether Hans 
influenced the portrayal of Miranda Priestley in The Devil Wears Prada. That entrance is quite similar to the Gurdjieff Lines entrance in Devil Wears Prada. It has that similar thing of, you know, when when um, Alan Rickman comes in in that suit, he just looks so incredible and it's so charismatic and you, you're kind of overjoyed that he's there. Hans, Bobby. The way that he, I mean, again, coming back to the, the Ellis scene where Ellis has kind of suggested and given up who, who John is, but um, the way he kind of is sarcastic to Ellis. Oh, you figured all that out. For yourself, <laughs> oh, I love that. <laughs> yes, brilliant. You're so clever. <laughs> I must have missed 60 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and him kind of boredly eating his sandwich. And uh, oh. he's yeah. just brilliant, isn't he? Yeah. And I, I mean, I think that his, um, I think his kind of, well, I don't know. I mean, you, how does he come across? Because the thing, the, the thing that I have about this film, you know, as a terribly serious uh, cinephile is that I fancy both John McClane and Hans Gruber. <laughs> so, <laughs> so when you watch it, you're like, oh, oh, this is terribly difficult. I don't quite know where my sympathies lie because yeah, yeah, you're both quite fanciable. But, um, and to me, it feels as if, part of uh alan rickman you know the choice of alan rickman and and having him play it like this is that he does genuinely sort of have a he has a cunning to him but he also has a sort of a law and that that kind of throws the audience a little bit in terms of just you know one-dimensional villains because he's not he's not only clever and evil but you know you you can't you kind of love watching him but um does that does that come through to you as a as a guy well, yeah, because he has this command over you, and 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 there is that kind of, I said earlier, Bond villain side to him, where he's he says about you know we'll be sitting on the beach, sipping up, you know, earning twenty percent, and there's all this stuff where he's the way he carries himself, the way he dresses, the way that he immediately positions himself in an executive office, yes, as though he belongs there, yeah, he holds court people yeah. come in and presented to him especially Ellis but the way that I mean is you do see a bit of a, a a reluctance from Carl obviously um Carl's brother Tony was the first guy that um that that John killed and he was a Bond villain actually um oh, he yeah. was in the living daylights and um Hans is very much like look you know try and neutralize him keep him in the lift shaft and Carl is like I want vengeance and this is kind of where the war starts in that Hans and Carl have a bit of beef around, you know, Hans does say at one point, if you'd listen to me, this he'd be neutralised. Yes. This wouldn't be a point. It's kind of like, I was right, blah, blah, blah. Um, the scene that they have, John and Hans, when Hans becomes Bill Clay and puts on the American accent. Yeah. So you've got an Englishman playing a German, playing an American. <laughs> Um, talking about you know shooting the guns that fire red paint, it's um, yes that between them. It's so amusing because you know you, you know exactly what's happening. But yeah, John's kind of got his hunches. He takes the bullets out of the gun before he gives it to him. Um, the reveal when Hans starts talking German. Yes, into the walkie-talkie. Um, just those little few seconds. Oh, it's just, yeah, it's oh, so yeah, gripping, it's so and you th- and you think that he's completely taken John in, don't you? And no, it really, really has you. 
do you think that there's a little bit in that 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 element that he has of kind of being being this kind of evil cunning person that's kind of clever than the 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 people around him it's a bit is it a little bit similar to Gene Hackman in Superman would you say that kind of thing um it, it's it? similar i think part of the the light relief of superman was that lex luthor made it a little bit more overt that he was saying, you know, I have an IQ of 200, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. I think this was just a case of, of Hans having hired goons who did a job and he was their boss. I, I don't think there was quite such the, certainly not implied anyway, the the intellect side of it. I mean, it was, it's it's there, but I don't think it was hammed up quite so much. I think he was, he was almost like an Englishman in that he was more interested in pushing his status and his intelligence and his class yes to other people in in the way that he was trying to impress takagi yes um about the suits and quoting was it alexander the great or something when, when he saw the bridge or the model of the bridge and there's a little bit of oh, we've joked about this the hyacinth bouquet about <laughs> him there um completely i think that that was kind of something that was a little bit different from from what you get normally and and i mean it's interesting that in the third movie the third uh, yeah they they cast jeremy irons as his brother oh right oh okay yeah and you know it was an obvious downgrade but, <laughs> yeah. um, still to be fair everything um, would be an obvious well, downgrade <laughs> You know, it's still like, oh, okay, yeah, I see what you've done there. And it was fine, but it was like, ah, oh, I miss Rickman. Um, yeah, completely. And their interplay, and they, again, most of their interplay was done by phone and, and remotely. They didn't have a lot of time together, and it's almost like they kept the same formula. But, <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, that, this this was something that I think it was just time perf- to perfection in that you don't want them in this film to have it wouldn't work if they had more meetings if they had too much more time together and they spoke the right amount as well i mean john had to get on with his thing hans because he's super intelligent had to wait because he knew the fbi would come and open the seal for the the seventh hatch yet he knew all this would be coming and all the the things he was trying to do to to delay the police were just so well planned. Yeah. That um yeah, I think anything else would have been different, but um it, and it just wouldn't have worked as well. Oh, oh definitely not. Mm. I mean, do you think they're kind of making a bit of a comment on this idea that, you know, um John as an American even though he's kind of on his own in the building he's very good at connecting with other people so he's able to have these conversations with Al and you know they build up this whole relationship during the course of the film whereas Hans is you know much more much colder he feels much more of an island doesn't he I mean do you think that they're they're making a, a bit of a comment on Europeans being a bit cold and unpopular there <laughs> I'm sure that was in the back of their mind <laughs> um, I mean we're not unpopular are we we've got a podcast yeah, yeah. people listen to us yeah. <laughs> hello I, I think that's the thing that John gets through this because of the relationship with Al you know when he's at his lowest point when he's 
uh, after he's run away after they've shoot the glass and he's cut all his feet up he's in the bathroom and and Al's giving him like proper pep talks yes over the radio and then it's that's really what keeps him going because you know at that point he's like if I don't make it and there is tell Holly I love her and it's like you can tell her that yourself Al should be a motivational speaker tell her that um that she is the best thing that ever happened to a bum like me. She's heard me saying I love you a thousand times. She never heard me say I'm sorry. And I want you to tell her that, Alan. I want you to tell her that uh, John said that he was sorry. Okay? You got that, man? Yeah, I got it, John. But you can tell her that yourself. You just watch your ass and you'll make it out of there. You hear me? Well, like I said, something to man upstairs. So he says all of that to Al, but you never see him say that to Holly, do you? Or you never even see him say, I'm sorry, directly to her. So it's like he's, as you say, it's like Al becomes his therapist and he's sort of able to say all the things that he should be saying to her to him but not actually directly to his wife i suppose it's easier to say it to someone you don't know isn't it and maybe he's hoping that by the time he's (laughs) by the time he's dead he doesn't have to worry about it but it's um yeah it's it's weird i suppose like al playing the therapist almost yes um and you know by the end of the film and uh, there is that that bit where he introduces Holly to Al and she says, oh, this is Holly Gennaro. No, it's Holly McLean. <laughs> she's, she's gone on the journey too. <laughs> he didn't even have to say he was sorry. He just <laughs> had to best, be yeah. tough enough in a vest. God, if, if only everyone knew that. That was the secret. <laughs> I mean, do you think the friendship between John and Al maybe represents the male friendship that a lot of guys either have or maybe wish they had in their lives yeah yeah definitely I I think um having a bond and again we haven't talked about a bond with two people at this point hadn't met and I think by the time they did meet they'd known each other for six seven eight hours at most you know that they've been through an awful lot and yeah we've joked about on other episodes you know that and again another cliche about how relationships of any kind based on trauma and how they how they last or not and (laughs) you do hope and then again by the time we get to the sequel john still relies on al for help albeit in a very very short cameo jake this is bad you slept with a defense attorney you literally slept with the enemy i know it's like if John McClane slept with Hans Gruber, or even worse, Jeremy Irons from the third one. And if we're talking about the influence of this film on relationships, um, I don't know if you've ever watched Brooklyn Nine-Nine. I, I have, not very much of it, but I have okay. seen some, yes. Oh, I, I feel bad. I, I, I shouldn't continue in case I spoil. Oh, no, 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 no. C- carry on. Oh, sure? Yeah, oh, yeah. Well, there's a scene where uh, Jake and Amy towards as the series evolves they they get together and as they're getting married as the ultimate present amy gets for him a wedding cake in the shape of the nakatomi building (laughs) and i think as part of his bachelor party they meet the actor who plays al um he's so obsessed with die hard um he's my hero and uh (laughs) 
and this is a you know a diehard is kind of a recurring thing throughout their relationship as well but um diehard is such a such an area of passion for for quite a few men that i know that it, it must now be regarded as something that is really good for people to bond over actually is an enthusiasm for diehard so it's probably helped a lot of friendships blossom just through yeah. existing like joey and chandler exactly <laughs> diehard still great yeah <laughs> hey what do you say we make it a double feature what else you're in diehard too <laughs> joey this is diehard one again oh but well, we watch it a second time and it's diehard too Joey, we just saw it. And? And it would be cool to see it again. Yeah! <laughs> you also put out a poll on Twitter about which relationships people thought were the most interesting in the film. And it is, yeah, it's, it's striking that the one that he, John has with Holly doesn't seem to draw more interest. Do you think that that is a flaw in Die Hard? Do you think that might be Die Hard's flaw? There is no flaw. <laughs> okay. If you, okay. Okay. Well, then defend that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, I think that it's not that kind of film. But I don't mean that they have to... I don't mean they necessarily have, have to have more screen time or anything. Mm. I just mean that... Because it's not as if John has that much screen time with Hans or Al. You know, but when I, I guess when I was watching it, I was thinking that Holly isn't maybe allowed to be quite as interesting as maybe the male characters. And maybe that's why you don't think that the relationship between her and John is going to be as interesting as John's relationship with the guys. Um, yeah, I mean, she, she does for all her qualities and her intelligence and the kind of the bit of grit and aggression that she has. She still a hostage therefore a damsel yeah um and needs to be rescued in 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 some way and, and obviously in the in the finale when it's the watch that ellis bought her that they release that drops hands to his grave um and i think that's kind of the dynamic that where she sits and yeah. and i think when you're talking about balancing the relationships and 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 that in the film um she only really has interactions that she can have with hands or underlings that we don't need to know yeah and ellis who is killed very yeah. early so you know we, we see bits of her throughout and she's got some insight and all this but it's really you know she she gets her little moment of triumph at the end when she punches formberg in the face yes um which is glorious. Yeah, it's he's great. just one of these again like Ellis, he's like a proper eighties movie prick. He's like <laughs> yeah. he was in Ghostbusters, he was in Real Genius, he was in these films where he was just this smarmy arsehole. Yes. And he gets his comeuppance at the end, which is great. But um you know, so she has enough memorable scenes in there. But like you say, you know, when when we did ask for for some not some guidance but people's opinions and and yeah that was very much the third relationship of the three that people were that interested in or, or, or saw as the most interesting do you think that the watch the the thing of you know her her watch being the thing that has to be unclasped for the big 
Han's death moment. Do you think that that represents anything about how the job has affected the relationship that she has with John? Do you think that means that she's free from the job? So she's kind of, you know, they can be back together and they can be happy? Or do you think it's kind of the opposite? Well, uh, the, the watch is like a shackle yeah. um, that Ellis has placed on her wrist. Yeah. Um, it's quite a heavy... <laughs> <laughs> it's hitting you over the head there a bit, isn't it? Um, <laughs> I, I guess, I mean, you know, we, we know from subsequent movies, you know, this is very much a, a franchise that goes, reduces in quality throughout. But, um, yeah. you know, in her role, essentially disintegrates by the third film. Um but yeah, I, I think th- there is that element at the end where she shed the character of Holly Gennaro and she's gone back to being Holly McLean again. Yeah. Um, a little bit like, you know, like in a Rocky film, you know, he's kind of, he's been trading and he's he's gone through a, an evolution and has become the ultimate, you know, she, she's gone through this journey and has become his wife yeah you know and and is i guess from their point of view they've been through a thing where he's rescued her from her place of work yes (laughs) if she hadn't worked there this wouldn't have happened exactly of it being a Christmas film and I, mm. I do we both think it's a Christmas film yeah I mean we're, we're doing this at Christmas yes yes yeah. and and you saw it admittedly on your birthday but mm. in the month of Christmas yes at, at a kind of Christmassy screening there you go and it takes place at Christmas I mean there's there's it's just littered with Christmas references isn't it the film? yeah at, at a Christmas party yeah on Christmas Eve the main character's wife, his name is Holly. Yeah. Now I have a machine gun, ho, ho, ho. Exactly. The um, the opening music in the film is uh, Christmas in Hollis by Run DMC. Yeah, can I just interject? Of course. Which samples Clarence Carter's Backdoor Santa, which is possibly the filthiest <laughs> Christmas record ever made. And so if, if, if no one's heard that, I would also encourage you to go and listen to that record because it's very good. Put that anyway, on your playlist. Yeah. <laughs> Carry on. Oh, and, and then it ends with Let It Snow. Um, and uh, Argyle, the uh, the limo driver, says, if this is their Christmas party, I've got to be back for New Year. It's, um, it's just uh, impeccable. Do you think that there's elements about whether it be the relationships or just the the kind of what you take from it that feel relevant to Christmas? Apart, apart from, you know, the fact that we have references to Christmas, you know, the sort of, you know, the, the what the centre of Christmas is. I guess the parts about John going to the family home. Yeah. Are, you know, when they, they, they talk about Christmas and they want their dad there 
how much of that is Christmas, I don't know. I guess is the bear a Christmas present? I suppose. Yeah, it must be. Possibly, or just that I haven't seen my kids for six months. Um, here's a big bear. Overcompensating. Yeah. <laughs> I I mean again, you know the the situation is festive. The the main strands of it, perhaps not, but I guess. You know, this is the thing with a lot of these scripts. They did the rounds in Hollywood for so long, probably before the film was made, and the way it was adapted from the book, that it was probably decided at some point, let's put this in the scenario of a Christmas party. And again, without having read the book, I can't verify that, but it does feel like this could take place any other time, but to make it Christmassy is the excuse to get all the people there when the rest of the building's shut. Yeah. But the relationships, I think, they... They're more evergreen. Why does it make you feel so good? There's there's nostalgia, um, but I think seeing the 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 relationship and the interplay between John and Hans and John and Al, it never gets boring. It never gets old. It never gets unfunny. Yeah. Everything about it, the poignant stuff, still hits. The jokes still land. It's just absolutely spot on. It's just like some people go and sing carols. I get a midnight mass. I put Die Hard on. Um, <laughs> Oh, the weather outside is frightful, but the fire is so delightful. And since we've no place to go, let it snow, let it snow, let it snow. Well, as we dust off our John Phillips suits and reclaim our massive bear, we leave you with a question. Are you just another podcast listener who saw too many movies as a child? I've been Kat. I've been Rich. And thank you very much for listening to this uh, Christmas bonus episode. Uh, if you'd like to leave us a nice little present under the tree, a, a five star, no, I will count to five, there will not be a six, uh, <laughs> review of this film on uh, Apple Podcasts or uh, like and subscribe on your podcast app of choice. Yeah, we've got two more Christmas episodes to come, so stay tuned. A little bit different from Die Hard, but equally entertaining nonetheless. And to be fair, probably one more Oscars, but it's... Uh, well, we'll, uh, we'll tell you about those in due course. But uh, have a Merry Christmas. And a Happy New Year. Ho, ho, ho. This has been Don't You Want Me. But if you really hold me tight All the way home I'll be warm The fire is slowly dying And my dear, we're still goodbye But as long as you love me so Let it snow, let it snow